Welcome to Robot Friends, the podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 34, Eigenrobot vs. History. Hi, all. I'm here with Abraham. Um, Abraham, how you doing? Hi, thank you. First, uh, yeah, th- thank you so much for uh, having me on the podcast. Yeah, no, my pleasure. It's... You know, it's sort of one day into the next, and and everything just sort of bleeds together with a new kid. Although you have a new kid too, right? How how old is your third now? Uh, my third is uh, what's the date today? I don't even know the date. My is uh, uh, four four uh, about almost four months old. Four months, okay. Four. Yeah, and uh, how how what's it like having three? Well, it's actually interesting. Uh, the other day, uh, the other week, last week. Or two weeks ago, I took um, my middle kid to the pharmacy. I had to pick some things up. I got her a little toy there, like one of those $2 toys. Yeah. And we're wheeling her in our double stroller because we have a double stroller with a bike attached in the back. Nice. So the oldest one could sit there. So the lady, the, the cashier, sees the double stroller and she says, oh, you have twins. Because I'm young. I, I look young. Um, yeah. I was like, uh, no, I, I actually have three kids. She's like, oh, you must have a hard life. I was like, well, uh, not hard. It's not hard. It's beautiful. But uh, I don't see it as hard. My wife might differ because she actually, um, you know, <laughs> she <laughs> works harder than I do uh, with with the, you know, with dealing with the kids. Um I deal with them too. I work from home, but obviously, you know, I, I can't breastfeed. Uh, I'm not equipped for that. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not getting up every two hours in the night, uh, but it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. The kids all, I mean, the, all three of them are under three years old. So, so it's like a whole little nursery going on here. If you like kids, it's good. It could get rough when you're trying to work. Um, yeah. But otherwise, it's it's really beautiful. Uh, I encourage everyone who's able to to just go for it. Yeah. No. Well. Yeah. By all means, everybody. You know, be fruitful and multiply. I personally have some interest in this. I think Scott Alexander may have challenged Celine and I to have more to 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 inspire at least three families. Maybe four is the winning condition. So That's you know. Surprise. Oh yeah. What's the prize? Oh, the prize. Um, I don't know if we win anything. This may be like a some kind of gentleman's uh, wager or, yeah. or gentleman's challenge. Um, but I mean that you know the prize is is we we induce our friends to make a good decision and and live a fuller life, which is all the reward we need. But yeah, there's. Um, I wonder how effective that is. So so you're an Orthodox Jew, is that right? Yes. Would you, would you say that in your circles there's sort of more support for for natalism? Uh, uh, very much so. There's, there's a bunch of a bunch of points I take um, to respond to that. The first point is that on a, on a religious level, obviously there's a tremendous support for natalism because obviously, as you mentioned, be fruitful and multiply. It's it's taken very seriously. Um, there's an obligation. Uh, in Orthodox Judaism, for every male to have 
at least one son and one daughter. And uh, the more the more the merrier after that. But but it's taken very seriously. Marriage is taken seriously. Marriage is is the norm, and uh, it's the norm in the in your early twenties. Uh, so there's there's that angle. So it's not like a huge decision to have your first kid. It I mean, with some people, it is. I can't presume to know what happens in other people's houses, but on a public level, on a you know the way it's viewed by societies, it's it just happens. Um, so, so there's that, uh, yeah. also, we have big families. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm from a family of eight. My wife is from a family of 12. Wow. So that exists. And yeah, the third point is that where our communities are, are let's start with the family actually. Multi-generational families are very much a thing. Kids going, you know, let's say we, my in-laws live on the other side of the country, so I only get there twice a year. But my parents live in walking distance, and we go to them every weekend. And I have plenty of siblings and parents, and, uh, and you get a lot more support that way. After we had the baby, we had friends, neighbors, family. They made us dinners for long time a month maybe yeah uh, for a really long time there's a tremendous amount of support and this multi-generational support's a big help too uh, let's say my uh w- one of my brothers is on vacation now he made a pact with another of my brothers that uh, they'll watch his kids this time and then when he wants to go on vacation they'll watch his kids so there, there's a lot of that helping each other which enables more kids and finally our communities are close knit, very close knit, and very close geographically, because mm. on Saturdays we can't drive. You have to be able to walk to a synagogue. So yeah. everyone's got to be I mean, the synagogues. You could say are the uh, the loci which connect, uh, you know, different webs of the community. I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I'm conveying that clearly enough, but it's it's a center point where people need to live within walking distance of of a particular synagogue, and that's uh, generally speaking. You know, you make acquaintances, you make study groups together, um, you invite each other to your occasions. Uh, you know, whether it's circumcision, a bar mitzvah, a wedding. So yeah. it ends up all that makes a climate very amenable to having a large family. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's this ongoing discourse that, that we're having out. Well, I guess outside of Orthodox Judaism, where, you know, fertility rates are really low in ways that maybe are socially problematic in in some way or another. And it definitely seems maybe even more importantly, that there are a lot of kids who don't feel like they can have kids. And I mean, listening to this, it sounds, you know, from a family perspective, actually pretty idyllic, but I wonder if there's, I wonder how much of that you could actually have without having some kind of more deliberate religious community, you know, like there it's, and that, I, I guess that makes me wonder a bit, oh, our baby is having a good time in the background herself. Um, I, I like, I wonder how much of, I'm, 
I'm impressed in a sense that Orthodox Judaism has managed to maintain this kind of almost older lifestyle, you know, not, not in a pre-modern sense, but just in a sort of certain segments have maintained it in a, in a pre-modern sense. Um, yeah, personally, I would say I'm, I, I'm from the most out there in my family and I'm, I'm pretty insular, but I'm from the most out there. Most of my siblings have absolutely no internet. Wow. They have no internet in their house and no data on their phone. They have an email address, which they never access for when they need to sign up for something. Yeah. So it's a, it, for, for a lot of people, it's a totally, totally different world. I mean, uh, a lot of people don't listen to any sort of secular music, um, I can't say I'm perfect in that regard, uh, but even I uh, tend to listen to secular music very rarely. I listen to classical music, but mm-hmm. practically nothing with lyrics, and not anymore. Um, there are some people very who have a, a strong aversion to secular books, books written, you know, outside of nonfiction. You know, sort of having novels and things in the house. Um, I'm not into fiction anyway, so I don't have that issue. I have, you could see plenty of history books in the background there. I have about 1400 books in my apartment. Yeah. That's amazing. Your, your collection. I always look at people's bookcases and your collection is, is beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. It's not all of it. Yeah. This, this, it goes. Yeah. That's amazing. But anyway, I, I didn't even, Oh, by the way, I don't remember what I was saying. I just want to just get this out here. Now my mind jumps like wild from subject to subject. So I could be talking about one thing and then my brain starts processing something. And before I know it, I end up somewhere totally different. So I'm just, just warning you in advance uh, 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 that this can happen. Uh, no, it's, it's great. I think that in, in some ways that makes for more, but I don't remember podcast. what I was saying. So it's a problem. Um, <laughs> yeah. You were talking about just the, the tendency of a lot of people in, in your oh, community oh, yes, being so less connected. That, right. It's insular. So, there is that insularity among what's known. Uh, it's it's known to the public at large as ultra orthodox. Yeah, um, uh, most of the ultra orthodox, and I say that in quotations, view the term as moderately offensive because it it indicates like they're fanatics or going above and beyond where they'll just say they're they're just doing the same old thing and they never bother changing. Yeah. Uh, but there's there's some truth to that and there's some myth to that, but that's that's not for here and now. I don't want to get too sidetracked. But there is a degree of insularity, even among those who are more out there, who go out and get college degrees, who are working out in the secular world and not within the ecosystem of our communities, and who are even active on social media uh, and consume secular media. Even so, there's a tremendous degree of insularity in the community and just the structures of the community. Um, is it possible to create this sort of uh, natalist society? Otherwise, it's difficult because when you have a society that's inherited its tendencies, for example, let's say uh, America in the 50s, uh, it was not, I mean, it's described as being very religious, but relative to earlier generations, it had gotten pretty secular already and and materialistic, but it had a lot of that inherited ethos, which has slowly faded away. Um, So that's one thing, but to actually revive it, to have some renaissance of, of sorts, 
it was much more difficult. I mean, I guess you can make a commune or something in the middle of nowhere and, and, and try to foster that sort of attitude. I know in the discourse, there's a significant amount of people who, who, who advocate that. Yeah. I'm not people keep trying. This, though. Uh, it would yeah. be nice. I think the best thing is to, is to, you know, within your neighborhood, you find a few families who are like-minded and just really rely on one another for everything and have this unspoken pact. And then, you know, have if, after a few generations, the families will be their own strong intertwined community. But that requires everyone staying in close touch after they reach adulthood. And like I said, with, with us, that happens more naturally. I mean, Jewish communities are, are largely concentrated in the tri-state area in a few major cities. And then a few other cities, maybe you have Miami, Chicago, but everyone's, the point is everyone sticks together. It's not so common for kids to move across the country away from their parents. So that fosters a sense of community and, and of dependence on one another. So I don't know how replicable that is. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little bit curious about this. I don't know that much about the history of Jews and Judaism in America, but there must have was there some. Oh well, okay, that's not entirely true. So my, I want to say my great grandfather in the early 1900s was a second generation German Jewish immigrant, and he was. Rem- his marriage was remarkable because they, they had three marriages. They were married in a synagogue and in a Presbyterian church and with a judge. So they, they had these three ceremonies. And I mean, I think he may have been an atheist at that point in, in his beliefs. But just thinking about this, what has there been sort of a, like history of division in American Judaism, maybe more so than existed in Europe, say, and, and like, how did, how did we get to whatever the status quo is where, I mean, I am familiar with like, you know, more Orthodox Jews, conservative Jews, and then, then very liberal Jews, which feels basically like Episcopalianism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, so, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a massive question, but just to tackle it, briefly and i am coming from my vantage point as an orthodox jew which is always worth bearing in mind um technically pre-modern times i guess you could call everyone broadly speaking orthodox in the sense that that it wasn't even orthodox wasn't a term that that was used then orthodox is a reactionary term um coined in response to uh, perceived innovation um, but generally, you know, in within rabbinic Judaism, everyone followed more or less the same same general rules uh, that varied based on country to country. You have Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews, um, and even within those communities, there's tremendous amount of regional variation. Um, my family, for example, is from Aleppo in Syria, mm. and there's. It's a whole world of, uh, it's got a unique liturgy, uh, certain customs shared by no other community. So there are these differences. But anyway, to the point, as far as the the main fundamentals, you know, uh, uh, one God, that, that halakha or Jewish law is, is normative and is binding, 
um, that was broadly accepted. Uh, along with the Enlightenment came a sort of Enlightenment in the Jewish world as well in the 1700s. Uh, Moses Mendelssohn seen as the the uh, prototype, but it started earlier. You have people like Spinoza or Ariel da Costa in in mm-hmm. Amsterdam, who who really started this trend of pushing back against the religious tradition. Yeah, Mendelssohn himself was personally fully fully observant of of Jewish law, but he he brought in Enlightenment philosophy. And with that, the individual and his conscience and, and that sort of value system. And over time, this mainly started in Germany. Um, you got this enlightenment system where, where Jews started thinking of themselves as less Jews and more Germans and wanting to fit in to modern society. So they started, you know, becoming more lax in Jewish law, so for example, uh, the laws of kosher, mm-hmm. are more lax in that, or culturally, for example, they introduced organs into their synagogues. Uh, they started calling their synagogues temples. Uh, the term temple for a synagogue is generally a reform uh, mm-hmm. term. It's generally used by reform. Uh, and then with Napoleon, that spread all over, because Napoleon obviously uh, spread enlightenment uh, and obviously, I'm giving a very, very brief summary that really doesn't capture the nuances or intricacies of the subject. In America, um, there were, I would say, three, three or four main waves. There are four main waves of, of Jewish communities. There's colonial times and, you know, the early republic. Those Jews were mainly uh, Spanish Portuguese so a lot of them were from the first Jews, actually, who came to New York. Uh, that was it was New Amsterdam that then came from Curacao. Uh, they were in Curacao because the Dutch were there, and when the Portuguese took over, they had to flee because uh, of the Inquisition. Right, right. To, to New York, uh, they they were largely they were in New York. They were in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Um, there were there were some in Charleston. There were also some German Jews who came. That group, um, they didn't have many rabbis, and they did not have such. They didn't have that much continuity. I mean, there are there are some congregations still around from them then in uh, New York City and other places, but you know Philadelphia. But it's not. They didn't really keep that much vibrancy. They lost most of their adherents. Um, to the broader American culture. And then again, in the 1800s, the mid 1800s, you had another influx of Jews from Germany. Was that with, uh, was that in 48? Well, it, I don't, I don't I actually don't know if it was tied to those upheavals. Okay. There, there was a very large German wave of uh, a large wave of German immigrants who were fleeing out of Germany in, in 48, um, who, you know, more, more typically were on the, the side of the liberals there. And, and I don't know whether the Jews played any role in this, but the the Germans who emigrated were very vociferous in the anti-slavery movement. So it's actually interesting with the anti-slavery movement. I don't remember the names offhand, but uh, two rabbis, one, uh, so I know the name of one, Reverend Isaac Leeser in, I believe it was Baltimore, and then another rabbi in New Orleans. And they both 
preached right before the Civil War. Um, they gave major sermons on the subject of slavery. And Reverend Leeser, who was in the Union in the North, gave a pro-slavery speech based wow. on the And the rabbi in New Orleans gave an anti-slavery speech, and they both ended wow. up causing, causing chaos. Uh, the Jewish community was very divided on slavery, just like they were divided on independence. There were some major Jewish figures within the Patriot cause. There's Haim Solomon, who financed a, a large, for a large time, he financed the Continental Army. He was from New York. Wow. There's Francis Salvador, um, who was in South, who was in uh, South Carolina. He was actually a, a delegate to their, to their, um, yeah, when they when they decide to yeah, vote yeah. independence. I'm, the, I'm having a mental block now. Yeah, no. Um, but he he was actually he led a militia unit to counter Cherokee raid along the uh, Georgia frontier, and he was injured and left behind, and they scalped him. So he's actually the first oh, God. to be killed in action. Uh, but on the other hand, you had a large amount of businessmen who were Tories because they had significant business contacts. You know, generally the mercantile class was was not a fan of war with Britain because it was really, really injurious to their business. Right. Uh, so Jews were divided on both of those subjects. But in the mid-1800s, this reform movement uh, from Germany got imported, again, by this influx of German Jews to the United mm. States at the Pittsburgh Convention uh, sometime in the mid-1800s, uh, where a bunch of rabbis banded together and formed the reform movement in America, where they declared that Mosaic law is not binding. I see. And that caused a major schism. The Wait, the, is that the declaration? Of what was that the, the 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 declaration was that mosaic law wasn't binding yeah well that was i don't have the whole text in front of me but that was the gist of it yeah no i'm i'm not objecting the, it just never occurred yes. to me that something like that had happened it was that was the resolution that that times change and and we keep the spirit of the laws rather than the actual in a certain way that's similar to to early Christianity, except it didn't have a Messiah figure. But the idea was that the laws were given for a more primitive time. Um, and now we've developed beyond the need for it. Or in the case of Christianity, there's been a revelation uh, and yeah. a sacrifice that obviated that need. But obviously the response was vociferous. Um, and there was that break. The term orthodoxy starts in Germany at about this time. This is really a transatlantic debate uh, between the reformers and the orthodox. Orthodox obviously means you keep uh, the old beliefs, the, the the standard beliefs, and, and and that's how things developed. Really, I mean, you have the reform movement, so that was reform. Right now, like you said, a reform temple. I mean, culturally, they may, you know, claim to be, and and this may be making a lot of people upset, but. Uh, you know, I don't know who's listening, but they may claim to be uh, continuing the Jewish tradition. But uh, as far as our vantage point is concerned, they've conserved nothing Jewish, nothing about Jewish law. It's not even a uh, requisite to be a theist, to be considered a reformed Jew. So it's, it's hard to see how that can conceivably be considered a continuation of Judaism. 
But then, so you had orthodoxy, but even within orthodoxy, there were more traditionalist and more reform minded elements because this is a spectrum here. Yeah. Uh, in the early 1900s, uh, you had a few, a few uh, pivotal, pivotal figures who they started a Jewish theological seminary. Um, they also moved in the direction of reform. They, they were orthodox. They identified as orthodox, but gradually um, they became known as conservative Jews in the sense that they were reformers who still conserved the function of halacha, of Jewish law, even though they pushed it to its limits, so to speak. Yeah. The, there was the first half of the 20th century, there was significant connect. There's significant overlap between the Orthodox and conservative communities. There were figures very active in both. In the 50s, I believe it was, or maybe early 60s, uh, the conservative rabbis, they had a, uh, uh, they, they, they had some sort of meeting. I don't even know the exact details, honestly, uh, where they came up with the ruling that one may drive a car in order to get to the synagogue on the Sabbath. So the this is the general concept here being that we're prepared to manipulate Jewish law to facilitate, uh, I don't know, greater cultural, uh, needs perceived. Yeah. Needs. They're trying to retain, uh, Jews in, in Judaism. And that was really the moment of the definitive break because all the major Orthodox, almost all the major Orthodox rabbis, uh, in America, came out and said, "Okay, we have nothing to do with them anymore. Uh, you can't teach in their schools anymore. Uh, you can't officiate in their synagogues anymore." And that's where that break comes from. Over time, conservative has drifted. Conservative Judaism has drifted leftward. Yeah. Uh, so they and reform are, are are different degrees of liberalization of Judaism, but they're both liber- liberalizations over time. Orthodoxy. Is still in flux. There's the modern Orthodox, um, who are generally, I mean, think of uh, uh, Ben Shapiro. He's one of the more traditional. I try not to. Orthodox. Yeah, no, no, I'm not saying to think too much, but, but you want an idea. That's he's modern Orthodox. Um, whereas people like myself are are a lot more, a lot more insular believe a lot yeah. more in sticking to ourselves and through that preserving our continuity. So that's in a nutshell. I don't want to go on too, too long about that. Um, no, it's, it's really interesting. And I'm, I'm in a, it's a story that I've not really heard much of anything about. And I'm surprised that I haven't heard or thought that much about it, but it also seems like it's something that runs in parallel to or, or sort of in the opposite direction of just a number of other a number of other related histories. I mean, you can contrast it with, say, the Reformation in in Christianity, where it it almost moved it sort of the the incumbents were people who you know the Catholics um, who who had in a sense taken a sacred text and stretched it you know to the breaking point already, and that was the the incumbent that was the institution and you know, Protestantism in a sense was much more fundamental. Like we should actually look at what these books that we hold to be sacred are saying. And why aren't we doing that? How far have you drifted? 
whereas it you know sort of like a a a schism driven by people who wanted to take things in a more explicitly i don't know textually conservative direction versus versus an incumbent that was much you know had had accumulated all of these traditions and sort of stretchings of of what was written uh, yeah the, the catholic church uh, largely um is based off magisterial teachings, the early church fathers, um, later on the scholastics were, were very influential and definitely most, most forms of Protestantism were reactions to that. Um, Calvinism, especially. Uh, yeah. Not all though, not all though. Henry the eighth was very, very doctrinally conservative, very doctrinally conservative. He actually wrote a whole book against Luther yeah, he just didn't like that the Pope had supremacy. Uh, he want, he, yeah, he, he he wanted Anne Wallen. It wasn't wasn't that deep. Of, it, later on, the Church of England got a distinct Puritan or, or Calvinist infusion that started really during the reign of of Edward VI, and then accelerated over the next century until the explosion of the English Civil War. Yeah, yeah. well, that was its high point, but. That's um, yeah. It's largely true that the Protestants were were trying to return to what they perceived as the original tradition. What's actually interesting, in a certain sense, it's worth noting that a lot of our paradigms of Reformation of Renaissance are are fundamentally flawed, in my opinion, and we could get to that later. But what the product the, there's a clear intellectual. Uh, progression from the Renaissance in Italy to the humanists in Germany to the early Protestant thinkers. Um, and and particularly, I want to talk about the humanists in Germany, people like uh, Johann Reuchlin, who one of the most famed scholars of his day. At the time, the Dominicans actually um, lobbied the Holy Roman Emperor. I forget who it was. It may have been... Um, at the time, it may have been Maximilian. I think it was Maximilian. Maybe. Otter's a safe bet with Holy Roman Emperors. <laughs> uh, the earlier ones. But I think, I'm pretty sure it was Maximilian uh, to confiscate all Jewish texts and, and destroy them. And they confiscated these texts. This was instigated by, by a Jew who converted to Christianity, actually, as most of mm. the campaigns were. Oh, I vaguely remember this story. Yeah. And, and Reuchlin, actually, he came out swinging in defense of the Jewish texts. He appreciated them uh, for their content. And he was also a big fan of, of Jewish mysticism, uh, which in his opinion um, could lead Jews to Christianity. Uh, obviously, I don't think he was correct, but that was his take on it. He wasn't the only one. The Pico della Mirandola in Italy was also very into Kabbalah. Um and, and there was this trend of Hebraism with these humanists, and that transferred over to the Calvinists. A lot of concepts of the Calvinist political, the Calvinist polity or, or their interpretation of scripture was derived off of going back to the Hebrew text of the Bible and looking in rabbinic literature, in the Talmud, in, in, in the Midrash, for support uh, for what they were saying. There were a whole bunch of th 
thinkers, very prominent thinkers, who actually wrote entire books premised on uh, returning to the original mosaic um, polity. Hugo Grotius has a lot of it. Um, John Selden, who was one of the most one of the most important English political thinkers of the early modern period. He was a parliamentarian. He was a member of parliament, actually, uh, in the lead up to the English Civil War. He died right before things, you know, got really crazy. Um, but he actually wrote a massive, massive work with a very impressive grasp of Jewish sources, Talmud, Maimonides, concerning the natural law in the Jewish religion. Yeah. And, and what the Jewish religion mandates for all of humanity, because there's two aspects to Judaism. There's the more parochial laws that are applicable only to Jews and the more broad laws, which are applicable to all of humanity. Um, but he made a whole study of this. Uh, uh, Milton references Hebrew writings a lot. Uh, yeah. The Republicans, the English Republicans, uh, made heavy, heavy reference uh, to Jewish sources when arguing against the institution of monarchy. Um, and and um, that actually is what led to the Jews being admitted back into England because Cromwell and the leading Puritans had very close ties to Rabbi uh, Manasseh in Israel, who was the rabbi in Amsterdam, who was a fascinating figure. Yeah. He wrote a whole book on how the Native Americans are the Ten Lost Tribes. He was a very, very interesting guy. But he, he had close ties with Cromwell because of this Puritan predilection towards Jewish scholarship. And he actually leveraged that, that influence to get the Jews, the Dutch Jews, initially readmitted uh, into England, where they'd been expelled from since 1290. Since, yeah, I was going to say that I didn't know that the readmission happened under Cromwell. I almost had this idea that it didn't happen until maybe the 18th century, something like that. Oh, by the 18th century, there sure. were plenty of them there. Um, there was actually, there was actually, um, in, in, during, during the late 18th century, there was a, a Scottish noble who converted to Judaism, uh, Lord George Gordon. He. Gordon did? Really? Gordon. Gordon, like the family, uh, the Earl yeah. the Earl Huntley. Yeah, so Lord Gordon actually started off as as a pretty staunch Protestant. He was he was quite anti-Catholic. Um, he actually led riots back when uh, Lord North uh, passed some sort of emancipation, partial emancipation for Catholics, which yeah. resulted in a whole bunch of people getting killed. Uh, they threw him in jail, and uh, sometime then he he converted to Judaism. I'm I'm not sure anyone knows fully why or how. Um, he went the whole nine yards. He, and you don't know how much of this is, is accurate and how much is other nobles, you know, looking on him with, with a bit of contempt, but it's reported that he used to, uh, basically show his visitors, his foreskin from his circumcision. Oh God. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't know how accurate that is though. Um, I choose yeah. to believe it. Well, anything strange I choose to believe as a general rule. Um, he was definitely eccentric. He died in prison. Uh, but yeah, that's the, that's the British nobleman who, who converted to Judaism. So man, there, there are a lot of things that I, I want to talk about. I guess one other thing before we move on to 
one of the 80 things we could discuss is the, it seems like that sort of handling of tradition and older modes that, that were taken by different, different Jews throughout American history, you know, people who kept fairly strictly to the, the textual like constraints of what I'm just going to work, you know, call, call because that's the best name that I know for the, the, the old Testament. Um, is that this identical to Torah or is. Okay. Uh, let me, I'm going to take over from here. Yeah, no, go for just, it. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, I think I know it. So the first thing you need to understand about what's Orthodox Judaism or what's known in a larger historical context as rabbinic Judaism, as exposed, as exposed, uh, excuse me, as opposed to Karaism is it's really, I mean, what, what you call the Old Testament or the Tanakh, we call it, uh, the 20, yeah. 24 books of, of our Bible. Um, that's, it's an important text. It's an important part of the religion. It's not where our practices are largely based off of. They're based off of the Talmud, which is an exegesis. Sure, um, fair. So Torah can mean two things. It either very narrowly construed means the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Yeah. That's in its very narrow sense. More broadly, Torah means the entire corpus of Jewish thought and law from the Bible to the Mishnah, to the Talmud, to the Midrash, to the later codes of Jewish law, to, you know, me and my friend talking, you know, in the hallway of the synagogue. All that is Torah. All that's the study of Torah. So it's it's a word that's used colloquially in a very in both a very broad and a very narrow sense, and you just pick up from the context what is being referred to. I see. Okay. So I mean, in a sense, that feels something like closer to the the structure or or feel of Catholic um orthodoxy before before protestantism came like this it's it's sort of larger than a focus on like these specific narrow texts and more like a broader series of commentary and learning that's that's sort of accrued around them yes yes in a sense and in a sense um we're like the most radical congregationalists i'm just going to take a second to explain that because in terms of the substance of the tradition you know the, the on a meta level uh, yes, it's much more like Catholicism in the sense that there is uh, an intellectual tradition uh, that's based off of exegesis and, and logic, and it's not purely textually based. It's based off of tradition. Uh, according to us, it's a tradition uh, passed down from Sinai, but obviously expanded on in every generation. Uh, so there's that. And in that aspect, yes, it is like the church, the Catholic church. In a, in a sense of hierarchy, though, since the Sanhedrin was abolished about 1,700 years ago, there has been no uh, uh, supreme. You're coming through. I'm coming through the whole time? Yep. Yeah. There has been no supreme. Uh, religious authority. So 
I mean, the Talmud itself is, is, is comprised of numerous different academies, numerous different opinions. And even among the medieval scholars, there's often disputes about which of those opinions is normative. And, you know, ultimately at this point, it used to be every community had its own custom. And by now it's broken down almost to the point where every congregation, the rabbi is in charge. You follow your rabbi. What he tells you, you do, or if you're enough of a scholar, you obviously you do a lot on your own, but there's this broader sense uh, of, of individuals learning and coming to the, the conclusions on their own. So that's very not Catholic. There is no Pope on the top. There's barely even bishops. You know, there are, there are obviously rabbis who have much farther reach than others and who are much more influential. Uh, that's usually on the basis of their scholarship. No one chooses them or elects them. They just attract a following because of their erudition. Yeah. Okay. That's all fair. Um, and that disrupts the other thing that I was thinking about a bit, which is that there, there's sort of a, it feels like there's a parallel movement in the arguments of the reform congregation and people who do things like advocate for a living constitution, right? Where there's this idea that maybe the interpretation of it can, well, change over time, right? Like the times are changing, our traditions should move with them. Does that seem right to you? Do you think it... Like everything, yes and no. Uh, I'm always leery, by the way, in general, and this is something I come across all the time, of people uh, plugging in you know, these these religious concepts or disputes to discourse, or even to serious legal analysis in the secular world. You- what, what I would say, though, is that on one level – Yes, there, there are certain parameters that don't get crossed. And, and you can, may think of them as, say, an amendment in a constitution. Uh, Maimonides codified 13 of them. Others have a different number. You know, fundamental things. Uh, there's God. He's one. He's not physical. Um, the Torah, you know, the Torah was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, etc., etc. Reward and punishment. Um, the, so those things, yes, uh, the reform would argue that, Hey, that, that changes or, or that's no longer true or never was true. It was just a useful construct or whatever. Uh, but the, so in that sense, yes, there would be that it, it would parallel in that sense, but on a more granular level in terms of actual interpretation of Jewish law, everyone agrees that there's constant development. The Torah, the Talmud says nothing about electricity, but you have to figure out. And this was actually a significant dispute, rabbinic dispute, a hundred years ago. What's the status of electricity on the Sabbath? Is it like a fire or is it not like a fire? And eventually the view that it's like a fire took, took hold, especially since desecration of the sabbath is a serious thing and you're going to naturally go towards a more stringent opinion mm-hmm. but you know these things have to be discussed and have to be hashed out right now in the medical field 
there's a massive amount of halachic discussion about all kinds of medical processes and 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 you know, under what circumstances are they acceptable or not acceptable uh, in vitro fertilization, for example, as is a prohibition against um, emitting seed for for no reason. So, how does that go with IVF? Is is, is there a problem? Is there not? You know, and these are you know sensitive topics, and and there will be a wide range of opinion. But these things are developing, and they're being clarified. I suspect over the next fifty years, it's be going to it's uh, going to be a lot more pertinent to to determine the halachic status of cloned animals. Um, are they considered living or not? Because an embryo in an animal, and this should not be taken as a parallel to abortion. By the way, I'm not touching that, but I just don't want any listeners to get the wrong idea. But an embryo within the mother's stomach, you slaughter the mother. You don't need to slaughter the embryo. Because considered a part of the mother. So what happens with a cloned sheep? But if you slaughter the sheep it came from, does that need to be slaughtered? Um, there are all, all discussions like that that need to be hashed out. So there is a sense of development. There's also a development in terms of rabbinic ordinances uh, where they decide that something which was permitted up until this point is no longer permitted. Polygamy was permitted until uh, the 10th, early 11th century uh, and in many Sephardic countries it was permitted all the way up to the 20th century and they came to Israel and the government said uh, no <laughs> not yeah. happening. Uh, generally I believe actually what Israeli law recognizes that if you came to Israel with two wives from a country where you were allowed to do that they allowed you that you that was recognized but you weren't able to do it anymore if you like your wives, you can keep them. If you like, you're right. That's good, po- <laughs> good policy. Um, yeah. So, so there's development and uh, uh, you know permanence at the same time. Yeah. So okay. So we've talked a lot about the history of Judaism in America and more broadly, but maybe especially in America. Where where do you see it going? Like, what does the future look like? So reform and conservative have no future. Their intermarriage rates are, are I think, over, well over 50%. And the main way they're, they're expanding their congregations where they can is through uh, conversions, but like, like the way Madonna converted, you know? Yeah. Not, you know, conversion or conversion from marriage. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's not a serious conversion and not a serious commitment. You know, show up in temple on Yom Kippur, you know, show up once a year and, and you're good to go. Um, that's not a recipe for continuity. Besides, Reformed Jews are subject to the demographic pressures that the rest of the developed world is facing. So I don't really, you know, low, low replacement rates combined with a large rate of defection, you know, uh, to... I don't see a future for them, really. Orthodox Jews are going very quickly. The question is where that goes. Uh, it, it's really an open question, and a large part of it depends on whether we can maintain the cohesion we have with greater growth. Because I look at certain towns, uh, Lakewood, New Jersey, for example, is uh, one of the largest Jewish centers in the world. 
I don't live there. I live about 40 minutes away from there, but I went to school there. Uh, I'm very, very, I have relatives living there. I'm very familiar with their society. 30 years ago, it was um, a very strictly rabbinic run town. Uh, they didn't. They barely even had restaurants because the rabbis didn't like it. They, it's too materialistic. We don't want. We don't want this here. They had you know takeout food that you could bring home. You can't dine in. Uh, I went to school there. They, they used to come to where I live for kosher restaurants. Now, the town's exploded. I don't. I don't know the numbers, but it, it's definitely increased fivefold over twenty. I, 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 I'd be shocked if maybe not fivefold, but double, tripled. It's grown massively. But on the other end, uh, the rabbinic hold is practically non-existent. There are certain sub-communities within the town who still go by whoever the rabbi tells them to vote or you know, they don't go to the public libraries or whatnot. But you also have a lot of gentrification, art galleries and, and, and luxury restaurants, which were things that were considered unfathomable 20, 25 years ago. So there is a sense of the loosening of these bonds. I don't know how far it will go. And it's in a larger part because I'm not sure what the broader pattern of society is going to be because the society at large is is proceeding towards some sort of denouement. I have no idea what it is. Some so There's going to be a climax. Something's going to happen. And I don't think anyone can predict it. Uh, so there's a trend of loosening of of these bonds. On the other hand, there's tremendous amount of growth just in terms of the raw numbers. And a lot of secular Jews, by the way, are, are returning to orthodoxy. Are they? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I myself, um, I used to. I don't have time since since the baby was born and COVID and whatnot. But yeah, I used to go once a week. I used to go to Rutgers University and study with. Uh, secular kids, a lot of them, their parents were Russian or whatever. They had zero exposure to Judaism and they wanted to learn more. And a lot of those kids ended up you know, going off to Israel, studying there for a year or two and coming back religious Orthodox Jews. And then, you know, going on to finish their education and build their family or whatnot. So there's a tremendous amount of growth. But on the other hand, there are changes, uh, qualitative changes that are happening. And I don't really know how that's going to play out. It's I'm watching with tremendous interest. Uh, part of my my concern with the direction parts of the community are going in is that I'm, I'm very skeptical of the schools in the way that I probably wouldn't have been 20 years ago. The schools, hmm. you know, tend to do an excellent, you know, something people don't realize, by the way. Orthodox Jews could pay easily $50,000 a year in tuition. Oh, Wow. Because and that's and in Lakewood tuition for a school is maybe five thousand dollars a kid. It's not that crazy, but we have large families. Sometimes yeah. it's more. I mean, sometimes it could be ten thousand for a kid, and that's not that expensive. But the public schools are totally out of the question for Orthodox Jews because they're totally secular, and really they're out of the question for a lot of people. Anyone who could afford it, no one wants to send to a public school. Uh, you know, it's secular, and, and we put a tremendous value on religious education. We always have. So it's always about going to a day school, um, which means you have, you know, and we tend to live in blue states because that's where we landed. And 
that means that there's very little school choice or vouchers or anything of the sort. So it's paid entirely out of pocket, non-tax deductible. Tuition alone impoverishes many families. Yeah. But there's no better solution. So, yeah, but anyway, but the schools, their their tone is changing. The 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 student body's changing. The parents' attitudes are changing, which is why uh, I intend on homeschooling. Um, I know you are also. Uh, yeah. Not as urgent for me uh, as, as I imagine it would be for you uh, because my alternative is not public school. Yeah. School I'm decently comfortable, but even so, I – I see disturbing trends uh, from my point of view in the development of, of orthodoxy here. Wow. Okay. That is a lot to take in and it does feel, it does feel parallel to, Oh, I mean, maybe a lot of things that are happening anywhere. I wonder how much of this too is just getting older and seeing things that you, you became accustomed to like changing and I mean, I guess that's just an old story at this point. Like, you know, this this far along into, you know, this endless series of economic and informational revolutions that have been hitting for the, you know, for the last three hundred years. It's dizzying. So, so what? Yeah. What? Are there any big things that people who are not Orthodox Jews or like have any really lack any major context in? into that slice of society or maybe even just that society is there anything that we should know that we don't there are a lot of things there have always been a lot of anti-jewish tropes that that stick around uh people don't know any better um and i don't know you know there's there's plenty of them yeah. Has, has that been getting worse lately? I mean, I see stories out of like New York and the surrounding areas, but I'm well, curious what it looks like from inside. The communities that that's coming from, there are specific communities that that anti-Jewish sentiment and, and activity is coming from. That community has been uh, at odds with the Jewish community since the 80s, maybe even the 70s. And there have been numerous, numerous incidents over the past. And in, in previously, they were held in check uh, by guys like um, uh, Giuliani and Bloomberg, um, but not anymore. And and there's just uh, – it, it's not that the attitudes change there, but more that they act with impunity now, people who, who, who dislike Jews. So they can beat up a Jew on the street in New York and be out by nighttime you know, without bail. So that's that's a concerning thing. It's more lack of uh, effective government protection. Uh, on the other hand, you also have. On the other hand, you also have. There is a spike. Um, I think the internet discourse has contributed to it, but among both the far left and the far right, there's a significant amount of of anti-jewish sentiment usually masked as anti-israel sentiment and i'm not getting in the subject and i'm not going to claim that all anti-israel sentiments anti-semitic i won't at all a lot of jews uh have theological issues with with the state of israel but that's not the point very often anti-semitism does masquerade as anti-israel sentiment and 
we see that a lot and that's growing tremendously. Um, but yeah, it's, it's mainly about a lack of government protection, I think. And that's why a lot of young Jews are actually moving towards gun culture. This is a fascinating phenomenon. Not enough people talk about, uh, I'm very curious about that. Like what, so among, among my parents' generation, my parents are, are boomers, and I say that in a non-pejorative way. I respect them tremendously, but they're baby boomers. Uh, among their generation, owning a weapon is considered so – it's so un-Jewish. It's so Gentile. It's, it's like treated with disgust and scorn and like, ew, we don't do that sort of thing. Among my peers, almost all of us have weapons. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a thing. Uh, so many people are armed. The younger, younger you get, the more likely you are to be armed. I think it has to do with two reasons. The first is that we see that the government's, you know, the older generation has a much more naive faith in the government to protect the Jews. You know, they'll still go on unironically about how, oh, this politician loves the Jews and, and, and will make sure nothing happens to us. And, and uh, we younger people are like, you know, you obviously haven't been paying attention if you think anyone has your back. Uh, so there's a decreased trust in government. And on the other hand, there's also the, the greater polarization. The, the more orthodox you are, generally, generally tend to go more rightward. Yeah. And there's been, I noticed, for example, a lot of, uh, a lot of younger people, uh, actually developed an affinity for country music, which really was never the case within the Jewish world, but it is, um, I myself, uh, uh, like country music very much, uh, the old bluegrass and the like, and that's unusual yeah. general, it's a generational thing. And I think that has to do with the conflation of culture and politics. Um, but these are purely my own thoughts. It's all based on my own observation. It's possible that other communities are different in that respect. Yeah. Well, I stand gnosis. So, so I'm going to accept it. Um, so, okay. So, um, one thing, one thing that I see in your room, in fact, the only thing that, that I see in your room is an enormous stack of, of bookcases, and like, you've got some gorgeous volumes on there. I can't make out the titles, but they look very impressive. So is that work related? Um, okay. So, and, and do you want to talk about what you do also? Yeah. Yeah. I'll talk about my, li- I'll talk about what I do. I'll first talk about my library, then about what I do. My library is divided into two main sections, which are my two main things I do in life, which is study of Jewish law and, and Jewish thought and then uh, history. There are some other books in there too, science books and whatnot, but that's that's mainly what I've got around. Um, so the the fancy sets you're seeing are 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 major multi volume uh, sets of Jewish mm. law uh, because these are big sets. You have said twenty volumes, thirty volumes. They get nice binding, nice matching binding. Uh, the only nice set I have of history, the only large set I have is I have a 20-volume set called The Annals of America, uh, which is all kinds of primary primary sources pertaining to American history. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, It's it's nice. Uh, I have that on the top. You can see that now. 
but then I have all my history books uh, because obviously I've been obsessed with history from when I was little, little kid. And I could say without exaggeration that from when I was uh, maybe 10 years old, uh, I would seldom go a day without reading something about history. Same goes for Jewish law, by the way. Um, yeah, there's one one thing that's a visual metaphor on my side, maybe, is that your Jewish law volumes are, they're like pristine, they're very well ordered, they're all the same height, they, they match one another on the bookshelf, and then in your history section, it's it's just <laughs> crammed full of books, they're sticking out in all directions, like, you know, lots of different sizes, lots of different depths, some of them are upended, I mean, it's, it's wild, so d- does that mean something? Yes, well, because it's two different spheres of my being. The the, the religious texts I, I treat with reverence. They never go on the floor. You kiss them when you finish using them. You don't, you know, it, I have to say that's the part of my uh, library I value more. Uh, it's much more meaningful to me. It's, it's, it's much more significant to me. The history I love, but, uh, you know, um, it, it's just not the same. It's the history is a hobby and, and my work, but a hobby and the religious texts are, are my life, my tradition and, and my being. So yeah, they are much more pristine. Um, I seldom buy them used the religious texts. I, I like having new, so they're nice. The history books I almost always buy used, uh, because you know, it's fine as I could read the words, I could read the words. It's fine. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's actually, you know, I think, my kid has picked up on that too, um, where where he knows the difference between the Hebrew books and he's he's two, but you know between the Hebrew books, uh, you know Torah and and the other books, and he recognizes the difference in, in value I ascribe to them. But yeah, so the history is about what I do. Um, actually, the story of what I do is pretty interesting. So I said I've been obsessed with history always. When I was in high school, I went to a, a boarding school. Um. Boarding yeshiva, you know, with, with dormitory in, in on Long Island. Yeah, and actually during that time, so there there the days divided between religious studies, which take up most of the day, and then several hours of, of secular study. The day ended at uh, started at seven thirty in the morning with morning prayers, and that ended at eleven at night. So it was it was, it was a chock full day. Um, but the time that they taught the, the secular subjects, I, I was a chronic um, skipper. I used to go to the public library and just uh, sit in the stacks and sit there for three hours a day, you know, skip dinner time and just read for, for several hours every day. Yeah. You know, sitting on the low stool, it, it hurt my back, but it was beautiful. It was really beautiful. <clears throat> it was very nice. And I got passing grades. I I usually got 65 because I aced the tests and was never present. So they deducted the maximum amount of points for um, absenteeism, but I passed so they couldn't fail me. That was the (sighs) the system. My GPA is pretty awful, uh, but I didn't go to college, so I don't care. Yeah. That's actually a point. uh, My tone on that's changed. I used to be very, very, very contemptuous of, of going to college. And like one time I was sitting in the airport, I was reading um, one of my books. 
uh, I don't see it right here to share. One of the thick, thick book on, on the European uh, exploration of North America. And, and some lady comes over and goes, wow, what are you doing? I'm explaining to her what I'm doing. I'm reading. She's like, wow, you must, you, where do you go to college? And I said something to the effect of, I'm too busy learning things to go to college. And like it hit a nerve because then she, like, she walked away. She came back after. She's like, you know, I went to college. I worked really hard. And I know that no matter what I do, no one can take that achievement away from me. And I felt terrible oh, because no. you know what? You know what? She, she obviously, she sacrificed a lot. People sacrifice a lot. You work really hard. You work really, really, really hard to get that degree. And it's a big sacrifice. So I don't cavalierly dismiss it anymore. What I would say though, I, if you're doing it for professional reasons. Yeah, I wouldn't say all students work really hard to get their degree. Yeah, okay. <laughs> having I taught. Know. My father dropped out also because it wasn't interesting. Um, he had a business to go into, so that wasn't a, you know. Yeah. But if you're doing business, I, I tell you, there's, there's a hierarchy in values. But yeah, if you're going to college for professional reason because you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or, or something that you need a degree for, then good for you. I mean, you know you're wasting most of your time on ridiculous electives, but you know what? It's what you need to do. It's a professional step. It's a real achievement, it, you know, and if you do it right, you should learn something in the process. But if you're going to get a, a some humanities degree that you're not planning on pursuing professionally, I don't know, man. Just, just, just doesn't sound like a good, good move to me. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I've got mixed feelings about it. Like I, I went to college. I took almost all at like math, science, engineering classes, just because I had taken all of, all of my humanities stuff via, via advanced placement in high school. And so it's like, well, you know, I'll take a Western Civ class, but mostly I didn't have to do a language for some reason. I think I passed the requirement in high school by taking enough Spanish. So, but I don't know, just, um, even that though turned out to be sort of a consumption good in the way that you're describing, you know, some, some student with a humanities degree is probably not going to use it for work at all. And I think there is something really noble about just going and learning as much as you possibly can. Yeah, but you could do that. It's like the, uh, it's the line from the movie, uh, uh, you know, not to pay $25,000 for an education you could get for two fifty in late library fees. You know, I don't know, maybe not everyone has that inclination to go and search out the knowledge on their own, but really with the internet, it's so easy to do now. Like if you really want to learn, first of all, you can continue learning after college. Um, th there's just so much material, you know, when you finish that, then you could go to, you know, yeah, there's yeah. so much material out there that, but anyway, so I didn't go. Um, so I, I've always been obsessed with history. It's tremendous amount of reading. And uh, then I went, I went to Israel. I studied uh, religious things, religious studies for a few years. Uh, I was, I lived there for two years, my own, and I came home and got married, you know, and so on and so on. Okay. You know, get a job. I had, there was a business that I was able to go into, you know, people I was very close to running the business. They said, yeah, we want you, we need a numbers guy. We want you to do accounting. Now I'm more of a Microsoft word guy than a Microsoft Excel guy. But I said, Hey, you know, my grandfather was an accountant. I'm okay with numeracy, not as good as my literacy, but it's okay. It's not terrible. 
all right, I'll do it. And they said, we'll pay for your school. Oh, nice. Uh, nice. Yeah. Okay. But the workplace was terrible. The, the, oh. work, the work was terrible and the workplace was terrible. And it's like, okay, they told me on being an accountant. And after sitting there for a bit and the, the department, it, it was really bad. And I, it was so bad. Like I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. Okay. Bad. Yeah. No, it really bad. It's when you know it's really time. My wife, my wife told me, you got to leave. Now, a few years, a couple of years earlier, <clears throat> I started a history podcast because I listened to Mike Duncan's history of Rome. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that, that sounds like a lot of fun to make. Um, I'm sure I could do it too. Uh, let me do this also. So I start one. It's still around, and and I still update it periodically. It's called From Settlement to Superpower. I'll talk more about it soon. It's American history, but it's so in-depth that it ends up talking about almost everything but America. Whatever. Uh, but the point is that uh, – so I started this podcast, and I enjoyed it, and it was nice, and audience grew and so on. And so then I went to work. I didn't have time to do it anymore, but then I was thinking, hey, maybe there's a way I can uh, – do history for a living uh, because uh, I have a tremendous grasp of it. I, I know a, a lot of it. So, you know, instead of making that, you know, just a hobby, maybe I can make a living off that and I don't have to work in this office, you know, corporate America. So I started off, you know, experimenting. I said, first, what, how would I make money? So you could have a podcast, which, gets a huge amount of views and then you can make money but you're realistically it's almost impossible to reach that point and if you're trying to reach that point you're going to fall out before then because you you take you five years to get there so i said hey on youtube they have a lot of history videos but all and they're very popular but all of them are like about like one battle and and they're fairly superficial because you're not getting glamorous visuals on, on the economic arrangement between a medieval lord and his vassal. It's just not happening. Right. So it's a lot more, uh, I guess, sensationalized or superficial. And that's very popular. On the other hand, you have some podcasts which are very in-depth that a lot of people love as podcasts. They said, hey, what if, what if you fused the two? What if you had something that was like a podcast in terms of depth, really, really explaining the guts out of historical subjects but also with visual accompaniment because you know you're learning about medieval england you're you you may not know where where leicester is you you may not know where warwick is you may not know where kent is i don't know what you know do you know where where marseille is on the map maybe maybe not i don't know it's very very helpful in history to have visual accompaniment to see, or sometimes it could be a complex family tree. It could be almost impossible to keep track of those things. So visual accompaniment goes a long way. So I said, okay, let me make videos that are obviously they're not like movies because I'm talking, you know, about in-depth things, but, but videos on history. And, uh, that's a unique product. And, uh, I could, I could sell that product. Uh, so I had no idea how to, animate at the time i had no idea even what you did to animate i didn't even know what program you used i googled you know like how to animate videos yeah yeah i started learning in the nights and in all the spare time i had how to use adobe after effects how to you know how to do all these things while i was working 
I started exploring how to build a website because I needed a very customizable website. I mapped out every function that it would need down to, you know, down to the last nut and bolt. Um, I learned all kinds of things. And I started, uh, and at a certain point, the workload of building the website and starting to produce videos and research and write them came too much. And I quit my job. It was the scariest and most exhilarating day in my life. I quit. Zap. It's a good thing I quit because three months later, COVID came and everyone knew got laid off and I would have gotten fired anyway. So. Yeah, fair. <laughs> I quit okay. before that happened. Uh, but. So now what I do is I have this website, historycourses.com, which is, which is, like I said, it's in-depth. It's meant for serious people who really, who are real history fanatics who really want to learn about it, you know, not just get a Wikipedia level survey of a subject. And it's, I, I, my pricing scheme is very low, so I'm a big fan of public knowledge where possible. I don't like, you know, paywalls, a high paywall. So it's like $5 a month, $10 a month is the maximum the most pro subscriber will pay. And you get access to all the material on there. And I put, you know, because I, I want people to also be able to gain off of this. I put a PDF transcripts of every lecture up on there with full citations. That's another thing a lot of these channels don't do is they can't stand by what they say necessarily. You say it, I'm like, okay, I got to take your word for it. So I cite it all. Um, and I have all these footnotes. And that's also accessible um, to members. And there's a blog. I also now, I went back to the podcast. I started it again. Uh, and that whole operation is is what I do for a living. You know, people, and and people like it. I get uh, very, very positive feedback, and it's just great. I get to do what I want to do, and I get to do it on my own. Yeah. So, and it, it seems like actually getting into this with COVID seems like kind of an auspicious time to start, which is a horrible thing to say. And I'm not trying to, you know, declare that, you know, your 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 business is like taking advantage of a pandemic, but also, I mean, people have been inside for a long time, and it seems like ended up taking more screen time. So did, did you see like a pretty tight correlation between subscriptions and, and like COVID erupting? If, if you don't no, mind asking. It was, no, because I wasn't set up then. I, I oh, was, no. I really only launched like two, two months ago in earnest. Okay. And even then I haven't yet done any intensive adverts. I've done much more minor advertising, but you know, on small YouTube channels where I, I do it, you know, royalty based, I'm going to be doing major advertising soon, but it's it, so far the response per views of these videos to how many of them sign up has been massive. Really? I've gotten a very large number of people from relatively small uh, viewer crowds. So People like what they see. They go to the site. They like it. It looks it's, it looks beautiful. Um, the con- I add content every week. I'm I'm putting more stuff in. There's three courses I'm in, I'm working on simultaneously. I have a rotation. Uh, one's on on early Rome. One's on uh, Norman England, you know, William the Conqueror, and so on. And one's on the American Revolution. The Norman England one has uh, about maybe six hours of content on it. Uh, the other ones have about an hour, hour and a half. Uh, so they're, but 
every week I'm adding more and more and more and it's building up and, and people are really enjoying it. So, so thank God. Yeah. Yeah. So what, like maybe zooming, like zooming out to the, the broader thing. One, one thing that's very interesting to me, and I think, you know, history courses fits into this is this, it almost feels like there's more history that's being done online than maybe in academia at this point. And I mean, no offense to academic historians who do like important <laughs> and niche work, but also when I think about like history pedagogy, it feels like most people like, I mean, especially a lot of guys my age, like a lot of us came out of college, not really knowing that much about history and then just spent the next 10 or 15 years of their lives like in front of a computer, listening to history podcasters talk about whatever they're really excited about. So like, what, what role do you think is being played here? And like, what, what is, what is even happening? So there's two, there's, there's two explanations for that. A hundred percent true. A hundred percent true. I mean, obviously academia is where you get the people who, who pour through, you know, 500 manuscripts to uh, ascertain precisely what the fluctuations in the price of grain in, in 16th century England was. And that's important. That's important stuff too. But that's research, not teaching. Teaching uh, is something that academia is largely abdicated on teaching history because when you look at a college you look at the courses available from a college now, it'll be something like gender in medieval England or, um, and I'm not even saying that in the sense that it's political campaigning, which it is, but putting that aside, even it's something very narrow and very, it's not a narrative. It's thematic. What people like, what people really, really love is narrative. It's just hearing stories. Yeah. And yet, People who like history like understanding and knowing intricacies too. There's room for that too. But you have to weave that into a narrative. And what a lot of academics now miss, and you look at some earlier history books, and they're really engrossing reads. Uh, some which are even, very, you know, some aren't so accurate. I mean, you have, let's say, Prescott on, on, on the conquest of Mexico, which is, which is a great piece of writing, but there's a lot of made up things in there too. So, you know, it's a bit of a trade-off. But even, let's say, Samuel uh, Elliott Morrison. So he, he wrote a lot of history books, American history books. He has the History of the United States from Oxford University Press. He's one of the best history writers I've read. Durant, I haven't read. I've, he's on my list. I haven't read because I'm uh, much more, yeah, at this point, I'm, I'm going much more in depth than that. I don't have that much time, but I definitely want to, but Durant, let's say he's yeah. known. He's just, he has great prose. He writes, he engages, he tells you a story of the development of a society of the development of a civilization. So that's missing in academic history now. And that's the role that popular history uh, fills. Popular history still has to come to grips with the importance of its role though. And what that means for accountability of what you say. Um, How do you mean? You have because when you're taking such an outsized role in teaching people about history, you have to be very accurate and you have to be transparent about where you're getting your information from, what your sources are, 
um, you, you know, you get up there and just say something. That's nice. And for a lot of people, that's very good. But you really should be backing up what you say somehow or another. That's my opinion. Because I've seen enough popular history, and this is books too, by the way, popular history books, which say things which they're just, they're just really wrong. And I, I can't claim I never make mistakes either. I'm human too. But at the very least, I strive for transparency and I strive to provide my sources. And it's something that I really do think um, uh, people would be, people want, I think, you know, I, I'm active on his, some history forums and over and over when they talk about these channels, the theme is, uh, you know, it's good content, but I think he's just regurgitating a Wikipedia page. Uh, so that's something that they need to come to grips with. And I think yeah. they are starting to, but it's a process. Hopefully my work's a step in that direction. Yeah. What, what do you think of Wikipedia as a source for learning history? I mean, like I'll, I'll personally confess like, or, or as like a phenomenon that that's been causing history to be learned. I mean, I've spent a lot of time just clicking through Wikipedia links. And, I like, think it's reading- excellent. It's excellent. But if you want to really know something, you, you must move beyond it. It's, it's great as an introductory level survey of a given time period or a given person's life or, or whatever it may be. It's amazing. Uh, um, it's, you know, a big part of expansion of the commons at a time where the commons are contracting in most areas. Yeah. It's very important. But I have to realize a lot of times it's not even malicious. I see things, you know, when I study something in depth and then I look at the Wikipedia article and I see, hey, I know exactly why you made that mistake and yeah. that's a mistake. And, but I, I, I think Wikipedia is a, a fantastic way to, to get your foot in. You want to, let's say you start one, want to start reading about the Ottoman Empire. Okay, what do you know about the Ottoman Empire? Wikipedia is a great first place to go. Read about it and do two things. First of all, Think carefully about what you read and make sure it's internally consistent. And secondly, look at their bibliography and work backwards off of that. That's that's the that's that's the greatest pro tip for for getting into if you're not you know going to college and being given a reading list of the most important works on a given subject, you have to work your way backwards from books. Look at and then when you get those books, get them from the library. Look at their citations, and eventually you start seeing who everyone's citing, what the most influential books are. Then get those books, read the heck out of them, and 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 work your way like that. That's the best way for people to learn on their own, in my opinion. And Wikipedia is really a great jumping point to start that with. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what... What role does history play in your life? I mean, it's large, but what are you taking away from it apart from, you know, a living? So two things. I mean, uh, two things. I said two things off the top of my head. A bunch of things. I can't say it. it... Well, okay. Jewish history in particular, a study of the Jewish people and and the history of Jew- the history of Jewish scholarship obviously aids me tremendously in my religious studies themselves. 
you know, you see a certain uh, scholar wrote something, when you understand the times he lived in and what was going on and what he's writing in reaction to, it gives you a much, much richer understanding of what he's saying. So that's one plus. A second plus is um, in terms of Jewish identity when, when, when I study what the Jewish people went through. And I think this is true really for anyone who studies what their kin went through, if you can. Um, it, it, it creates a sense of solidarity with one's forebears. You know, something, let's say an anti-Semitic attack happens, and, and I think back to you know, most people, most Jews, unfortunately, only know of the events of the 20th century, but there's been thousands of years before that. There's There's been a lot that happened, and, you know, I feel connection to my ancestors, to who I am, to where I come from. Uh, I have my, my family tree of actual names and biographical data goes back to about 1700. And before that, we have several several workable hypotheses, which are backed by by DNA and so on, which which creates several other uh, uh, like three possible origin stories for my family. But we generally know which communities they passed through over the past thousand years, and and understanding what those communities went through gives me a much stronger sense of being grounded in my identity. And identity is something uh, seriously lacking now. And, and I think it's very good for the spirit to, to know who you are and, and where you're from. That's on a religious level, on a specifically Jewish level. On, on a secular level, there's a few things. First of all, it's fun, like we said. But putting that aside, it gives me a greater tolerance for new things or, or new ideas or different ideas because really all the interesting you want to know where all the interesting people are they're in history that's where you find fascinating people fascinating ideas different societies that worked in a totally different way from ours and you know it really makes you think and and you stop you stop thinking you know this sort of end of history nonsense that's that's very popular or, or this idea that, okay, uh, liberalism, classical liberalism has triumphed and, and uh, we are, you know, we're at the apex of human achievement or, 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 you know, people who unironically think the United States of America is going to continue to, you know, prosper forever and ever. And you kind of gain a, a meta sense of, Hey, this is not, this is not true. This is not necessary. Empires rise, empires fall, civilizations rise, civilizations fall. Weak civilizations are replaced by uh, uh, more energetic ones. Uh, you realize all these things. And it gives you. It also gives you a sense of proportion to what's happening. Let's say with the, this past year, you know, people flipping out. And I'm in no way saying that the amount of deaths, I don't know, what is it, 5 million or whatever it was, I don't know, no one knows the real number. Whatever it was is not a bad thing. I'm not saying that, but proportion. Proportion to how many people died of diseases in every century uh, prior to the 20th. Uh, proportion, you know, you talk about plague, you know, this is no black death. It's, you know, you understand proportion. 
you understand when people talk about other people's flaws, like, well, they're flawed, but you know what? Uh, a lot of people are a lot worse than them through history. And you really, you know, you just get a sense of, uh, I, there's a term for it. Um, I don't remember the term, but of, of being, you know, centered on your own time. Knowing history counters that, and it gives relief when crazy things happen in the world. And finally, it does give you a sense of understanding the forces at work. You know, think of the uh, the bell curve meme. The dumb guy is saying history repeats repeats itself, and the middle guy is saying, no, you can't say that. What about the infinite number of variables in each particular case? And the smart guy is saying history repeats itself. Yeah. Uh, because, because what's going on, obviously history doesn't repeat itself in the sense that you can predict what will happen because there are – there's no single vector at play. There's thousands of vectors at play in any given historical process. Uh, what you can understand, though, is one specific aspect of what's going on in society can parallel to a specific thing that's happened in all kinds of different forms with all kinds of different results through history. But you can identify the underlying pattern. It does repeat itself in that way. But again, there are unique circumstances, so there's no way it's no no it's not necessarily going to turn out the same way. Uh, so yeah, history does give you a sense of understanding better what's happening now. So one one last thing um, that I that I wanted to ask you is um, maybe one last thing. One one thing that I was curious about is. I was thinking the other night about the role of Darwin in history. I mean, I have this idea that like maybe people haven't really done a good job of, of integrating Darwin with, you know, society. And I guess by that, I mean, in, in, the Nazis the, did. well, so I don't, I don't think they did a good job either. Well, not you a know? good job, but they, I, in my opinion, they took, they took um, his ideas to to the conclusion. Do you think so? I'm not I, a fan. I, I'm, I'm not a fan. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, uh, my my approach is this. I mean, if putting aside the godlessness aspect, but when you uh, create a, a cosmology or, or, or you know a, a world where it's dictated by force rather than by harmony. Meaning each party trying to take as much for itself rather than uh, creating a balanced system, then you end up with a direct link between that and uh, Nietzschean, you know, will to power, and from there you end up with, yeah, you're, you push your race, you subjugate all others. Uh, in my opinion, that's a fairly rational conclusion. It, what I think they go wrong in, you have to realize, is that the world. It's not just about competing interests. That's not how nature works. Nature is a harmony. You know, uh, something gives in with one hand. It's something it takes with one hand, but it gives with the other hand. Animals give back to the soil. I'm not saying this is a conscious decision, but the way the world works is through both taking and receiving. Now, when you see that as the result of of a single intelligence, you can easily spot the harmony in it, the harmony of any system in the world 
photosynthesis, um, the way rain comes and evaporates, uh, the balance between the uh, different forces in the atom, which allow it to, you know, hold together. Uh, the way gravity balances out the the universe. All these things are are about harmony. This was Newton's one of Newton's big points at the end of his uh, uh, Principia that there is a world of harmony, and that's at odds, in my opinion, with the survival of the fittest type of mentality which took over uh which you know grew especially after it got this uh scientific patina with with darwinism yeah so i'm thinking like you know merit merits of the argument aside um of of darwin aside like it does seem like it implies a very different like sort of human self-conception, right? Like instead of being a creation, perhaps with some order involved with it, it's, you know, this sort of a uh, mad emergence sort of I by these selective pressures. Disraeli, Disraeli put it best. Benjamin Disraeli. Um, he said, uh, you know, one can choose uh, whether to be on the side of the angels or the apes. And I choose the angels. Um, it's, what's worth noting is that Darwinism is not incompatible with theism in any sense, and every smart person recognizes that. Um, and that's why I'm not trying to make this a dispute about that. But it's a question of whether you view processes as random or as guided. Yeah. And I guess it depends on what kind of guidance you want. I mean, I could I could come up with a world where, you know, everything has been preordained on the basis of, you know, some kind of... Um, you know, computers sitting outside of the universe and, and computing Albinism. the starting. St yeah. Well, I mean, just the, you know, just having everything determined in that way. So like, I mean, that that's fine. And it seems like you have to come up with a very strange framing for the world that would make it incompatible with, you know, some kind of divide intervention at some level. Um, but, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, like sort of, I wonder if there's a, I mean, there must sort of be a kind of unmooring when your conception of what humanity is, is like that entirely material, I think. Like, what what are we even trying to do in that case? Like, as yeah, humans. I mean, yeah, that's the, the malaise of the of the uh, 20th century, really. Um, if, if there's no purpose, if there's no larger purpose, it's very, very hard. I don't know if it's impossible. I'm not going to go so far as say it's impossible, but I think it's going to be really hard to create a coherent world frame that, that gives meaning. I mean, you could go the Epicurean route and just say there, there's no meaning, uh, you know, enjoying yourself, having fun. But the question is what room that leaves for uh, real altruism? Does it leave any room for altruism? Uh, you know, the theoretical guy on the, the desert Island, um, you know, with one other person there, is there any room for extending any kind of ethical consideration to the other guy? Uh, there's no judgment of society, so that whole line of argumentation is taken out. I don't know. I, 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 I have a hard time conceiving. People just say, oh, well, I'm just a good person, which is fine. And most people are like that. We're all like that. 
We don't really think through every moral prior we have, and we act on instinct. But ultimately, we should want that instinct to be uh, at le- at the very least internally consistent. Yeah. Yeah, I was chatting with... Um... <laughs> I was chatting with Becoming Critter the other day, and he had the position that rationalists and post-rationalists are evil, or, or I guess immoral. I'm not and, familiar enough with the with the scene, to be honest. Um, I yeah, only across it on Twitter. Um, um, I I think he was arguing that ethics is casuistry, and therefore anybody who's interested in ethics is bad actually because everybody knows what's actually good and so eth- uh, in my in my historical factoid thread my historical factoid thread i don't know if you've seen or not on twitter i, I know some people uh uh you know got a little nervous from a 300 tweet thread no but, that's good powerful uh, but yes so i described how the aztecs would sacrifice children it's pretty gruesome stuff. They'd make the babies cry to simulate rain. They'd pull out their fingernails. Oh, God. Um, okay. They believed they were doing the will of the gods and keeping the world around. Instead, and, and, and this was across Mesoamerican civilizations, sacrificing children. Uh, many societies, the majority of societies in the past, viewed that as, as an ethical thing to do. It's hard to – maybe you could say that that itself is a result of, of looking at ethics and you want to go back to some you know, Rousseau-like uh, you know, state, uh, primeval state. But I don't see how that's possible. You're always going to have some priors um, to your – But so these people, they thought what they were doing is ethical, but it was monstrous and barbaric. So I don't see how that view – that ethics is natural goes. It only comes from, you know, growing up in a world that's been steeped in a particular ethical tradition. And, and whether if you're in a country influenced by the Abrahamic religions, it's that system. If it's in China, it would be by a Confucian system, but wherever you are, it's based on some old system. That's what your priors are based on. But, you know, other civilizations had their priors also based on their their forebears, and they were totally messed up. So yeah, I, I disagree strongly. Do you see Do you see a telos in history of any kind, like any sort of direction? I see a telos in everything. Oh, okay. I mean, well, you know, fair enough. I see a telos in everything. Um, uh, I I can't say I know exactly what it is, but I see a clear directionality. Interesting. And do you, do you, is that something that, and it, like a religious directionality or yeah. are you thinking of something? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you have to realize in my conception in the Jewish framework, uh, the entire world only exists as a preparatory stage for the world to come. So, its end is ultimately always going to be directed to the benefit of all of humanity's souls. So that, that would be, and that's the framework th- through which I approach things. So naturally I'm going to see that telos. There. Hmm. How, 
would would how do you imagine that changes your experience of learning about history compared to somebody who lacks that like can do you, how do you imagine does that does that question even make sense yeah what it does what it what it makes it, it makes me um look out for connections more and look out for irony more those are two things that i've i've developed my antenna for a bit uh, which makes it quite quite enjoyable uh, but but yeah finding irony uh, is one of the the byproducts of this uh, but otherwise i generally don't try to you know suss out what the telos is because you know what do i know i don't know anything I, you know you know compared to an intelligence that spans all the cosmos and all the eons what do i know so yeah. you know i'm i'm too puny we're all too puny to to accurately you know i don't even know you know what my father ate for dinner last night you know how am i supposed to know what went on behind the scenes and you know what do i know so yeah, i don't yeah. try to to determine that but i do believe it's there and in little glimpses of irony um you sometimes see that is is there is there any way in which your sort of view of history you you were talking before about you know how this has all been done before and and have a sense of proportion as as things you can get out of history i'm not sure that's a completely fair characterization but i use those words specifically because it reminded me a lot of ecclesiastes that which was done shall be done yeah and there's nothing new under the sun yeah yeah that uh, by the way that and and chapter three a time a time a time a time you know uh, a time to give birth a time to die time to love a time to hate time for peace time for war war time for peace that profoundly influences my view of history in particular particularly with regards to political philosophy you know a lot of the people I interact with on Twitter, there's a lot of discourse about liberalism, post-liberalism, monarchism, integralism, all these things going around. And what so many people are, it's it's such a simple thing to me, but so many people seem to have a hard time wrapping their head around it. There is no one system of governance that's universally good or appropriate for everyone. Every nation has its own traditions, its own temperament, its own material conditions and its government has to be predicated on those factors. You can't claim that uh, a monarchy is good for everyone or, or a democracy is good for everyone. It's not different societies have different needs and different times have different needs. One society can need one form of government at one point and a different one at a different point. And <clears throat> that's fine. I don't understand why people need to make these sweeping absolute uh, generalizations. Oh, it's America's fault. Everything. I, mean, I know. I've, at this point, everything is America's fault, and I'm fine. I'm fine with that. Um, fine. Fine being the world's sin eater. No, but I mean, America. It feels like America was, in a sense, the first like eternalist ideological state. You know, like sort of founded on this idea that there are certain principles of government that are basically divinely ordained and yeah you know like the, there's something I, sick yeah i would reframe it i wouldn't say it's america's fault i would say it's jefferson's fault 
I'm not a fan of Jefferson, definitely not part of the Jefferson fan club, but it's worth noting, you look at the American Constitution, it's very clear, it's not operating off of this principle. Oh, yeah. The slavery thing. In general, that's not its goal. Its goal is to replicate the British Constitution with a few minor tweaks to account for a federal government. Right. It's the British Constitution. Anyone who, who understands the development of the of, of the British first English and then British Constitution understands exactly where our government came from. The president's powers, the power of pardon, the power of veto. The negative voice was a prerogative of the British monarchy, which fell out of use after William III died. Um, it was operated only once after that, I think in 1712 by Queen Anne. Yeah. Uh, even then it was at Parliament's request because they changed their mind. Right, right. Um, but it re- and it was totally – but uh, America codified that because they said, hey, we need a, a slightly strong executive because their – they actually suffered from the fact that George III was not willing to go to bat with Parliament against them. This is an important thing a lot of people don't realize. Prior to the revolution, the argument was not against monarchy. It was against Parliament's right to interfere with colonial affairs. So the constitutional argument made by James Wilson and others was that ever since the colonies were created, they were not part of the realm of Great Britain. They were a separate realm, unified to Great Britain only by the person of the king. Was that the argument? Interesting. This okay. the argument. Now, now, during King James and, and, and actually Sir Edward Coke, I believe it was, uh, maintained this in front of Parliament on more than one occasion, that they had no right meddling in the colonies. They started meddling in the colonies with, with Cromwell's protectorate, the, the Navigation Act of 1651, but... Um, as a general rule, those were ignored till uh, till a century later. But the idea was that the, the colonies are a separate realm, unified only by the king. Now, after the Glorious Revolution or the English Civil War, whichever one you say, after it was determined that all the rights of Englishmen include the right to be represented in a parliament, that meant that the colonies had the right to be represented in a parliament as well. But which parliament should that be? Not Great Britain's because they are a separate realm. So the idea was that the colonial legislatures should, under the Bill of Rights and under the so-called ancient rights of Englishmen, be considered the equivalent of the British Parliament for the governance Mm. of the colonies. And the royal governor was an appointee of the king. He could serve as the king's... um, you know, a plenipotentiary, I guess. Right, right. That was the idea. Um, once the revolution broke out, that all... But anyway, King George didn't like that. He said, no, 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 uh, Parliament has the right, uh, and he refused to stand up to Parliament. But that's why um, all the complaints are against Parliament before... They're not against the king. It's not just because of a respect for the king. It was because that was part and parcel of the constitutional argument Right. That they were trying to make. Um, I'm not sure how I got here, but yeah. No, no, it's good. It's good. I mean, like history is like that. You know, it. you start off telling a story. Oh, we were mad at Jefferson. I I don't oh, know that oh, I was yeah, mad at yes, Jefferson, yes, but like. I hate Jefferson. 
Yeah, the point is, um, so the Constitution was founded off of the the British um, Constitution and was not necessarily considered to be the appropriate government for all people. And most of the framers were pretty explicit about that, that it's not always appropriate. Right. But Jefferson and his faction had a very universalist idea. And that's why they were fans of the French Revolution and Robespierre and all that. And and they they're eventually their vision won out because it was an alliance with American populism. Right. And and once the Federalists got demolished uh by the Jacksonian by by the first Jeffersonian and then uh, Jacksonian Democrats uh, it was it was the end of that idea and that this idea that that all men are are created equal and and are therefore and the constitutions are a result of that right. which is the direct progenitor of of all these you know world fixing crusades uh, that that we've gone on uh, that's all Jefferson's fault basically yeah yeah. So can I write you down as like a supporter of my my bid to have the national anthem changed to be um, Battle Hymn of the Republic? No, Chester. Chester was the original national anthem. Chester. I don't know Chester. Let tyrants shake their iron rod and slavery, slavery clank her galling chains. We fear them not. We trust in God. It was the original anthem. That's pretty good. The- Why'd they change it? I don't know. I mean, look, the Star Spangled Banner uh, is, is, in my opinion, uh, a rather silly idea for the anthem. Yeah. Battle of the Republic is also superior to it. The problem is uh, America would almost certainly have to – the last stanza <laughs> never sits well with me. So that's which my one, personal – Which one was it? I can't remember what there. The beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Of his bosom, he transfigured you and me as he died to make men holy. As he died to make men holy, let us live or die, depending on the version to make men right, free. Right. Or God is okay, I'm not singing that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. So, um, man, so is is there anything you want to talk about in medieval history, especially? Like, is there anything that you're fixated on right now? Well, I'm mainly I'm mainly focused on um, on on uh, uh, Norman history and and medieval English history because that's that's actually what I'm I'm focusing on. But one thing I would say if if I if I if someone asked me to talk about one subject of medieval history, one thing that I would correct would be the perception of the feudal system that we have. Somebody was asking about this. Okay. Yeah. By all means. Well, obviously you're talking about medieval times. This is a very important subject, but, and, and by the way, I think paradox games were very good for learning history, you know, crusader Kings two, three, whatever. Yeah. But they're also responsible for the wide pro- proliferation of several misconceptions for, for the purpose of game mechanics. Actually, but, that's great. Yeah. What, what, what are the worst misconceptions introduced to the one's understanding of history because they played paradox games? This is actually yeah. important. So, if we're going to be talking to my audience. So the, the direct, the linear structure of the feudal system, the way a paradox game and the way a standard textbook would present it to is you have a king and he gives land to a duke who gives land to a count or an earl. 
who gives land to a more minor knight or baron. Uh, you know this idea that and 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 if you're if you're an, if you're a subject of a king, you're part of his realm. Totally, totally, totally misses the boat of the nature of these sorts of relations. For example, in the English possessions in France during medieval times, they were never part of the realm of England. They were always, in theory, uh, held in fiefdom of France, the king of France. The king was, as Duke of, let's say, as Duke of Aquitaine, he was a subject of the king of France. As king of England, he was sovereign. He owed feudal duties to the king of France. It's in the same person. Uh, alternatively, you could have one uh, person who holds titles from four, five different people. For example, there's um, the House de Belém. They were uh, uh, one of the prominent noble houses along the Norman frontier. But they held the castle at Alençon from Duke William of Normandy, later William the Conqueror. They held the castle of Domfront from the Count of Maine. They held the castle of Belém uh, from uh, the, they held the castle of Belém from the King of France, and the bishop bishopric of Say, also from the King of France. So they had all these different lieges, and they always played each one against the other. It, it's not so simple as saying, "Oh, he's his lord, he's his vassal." It worked by the manor, it worked by the estate. You could hold something from multiple uh, lords and owe each one of them duties. There's actually a pretty interesting story with the Belems that highlights this. William de Belem, William II de Belem. It's a very, very nasty piece of work. Very, very nasty piece of work. Um, he had a vassal uh, named Jeroix uh, de Echafour, Jeroix the Lord of Echafour. Uh, he would, um, now, this Giroir was also a vassal of Geoffrey of Mayenne. So he had vassalage from two lords. And at one point, Geoffrey de Mayenne and William de Belem went to war against one another. And Belem captured Mayenne. So the guy's other lord. The guy's right. second lord. And the precondition was, the, the condition for releasing Geoffrey de Mayenne was his vassal, Echafour, would destroy the castle that he built for Geoffrey de Mayenne. So he's trying to take more of the vassal for himself. And yeah. what the vassal did without his lord even ordering him, he took, tore down the castle. And for that, so then the lord got released, Geoffrey de Mayenne got released, and in gratitude for his vassal's actions, he just built him another castle. <laughs> so that that really, really annoyed William de Belem. So what he does, did was he made a party and invited his vassal and when the guy showed up, he had his men beat him up, castrate him, blind him, cut off his oh. nose and ears. <laughs> it escalated. Yeah. He barely survived and he lived the rest of his life uh, in a monastery. Yeah. But it just was to highlight the tensions that, that came as a result of competing vassalages. The Hundred Years' War was preceded by by decades and decades of struggle over the the lords of Aquitaine because the English 
kings were technically the kings. They inherited it from Eleanor of Aquitaine, but that was as a duchy of the kingdom of France. So the, the Parlement in Paris claimed the right to appeal cases um, from Aquitaine, and the kings of England refused it. And there were these kinds of underlying issues that eventually led to the Hundred Years' War. So that's, that's I'd say, the number one misconception is this idea that it was a directly linear progression of, of lord to vassal. Someone could be, you know, lord, vassal of multiple different lords, often fighting against one another. And it would sometimes be expected that in a war between two lords, one vassal would give one of them money and the other one levies. Because he held one holding in scudage from one lord and another one in fiefdom to the other one. And both lords were okay with that because he's just fulfilling his obligations. Yeah. So that is super interesting. And also the diversity of basically, essentially contracts, it seems like that were present that, that like, um, you know, that dictated the conduct between these different parties. I mean, it, it seems like there must've been an entire canon of feudal law that you know, the important thing was it wasn't even law it was convention and one of the things i love most about medieval history is it actually highlights medieval history i would say of all eras of history is the most personal it's most based on interpersonal uh, relationships and and predicated on those things cat what if you didn't put your man. yeah butt in the camera <sighs> sorry about <laughs> um, that yeah so she's done this before <laughs> she's moon, mooning the uh, audience yeah uh anyway so yeah it's the most personal uh, because feudal contracts are based entirely on the respective power of lord to, to vassal the whole feudal system emerged at the very least uh in what was formerly the carolingian empire so germany and france the whole feudal system emerged with a breakdown of Carolingian royal authority. There were Viking raids. They were unable to protect their people. So local lords started taking matters into their own hands. They started building their own castles. And once they built their own castles, hey, now the king uh, can't effectively enforce his will because their castles control all the main roads going into their lands. Okay, now the king is no longer allowed to collect tax money from us. Now we're going to appoint the local bishops. Now... Uh, the king's not allowed to pass through our lands. And all this happened in France. And then when the French kings regained their power, that they forced themselves back on their vassals. So, and, and you see it even, let's say, with William the Conqueror. In his minority, he had no power because he was a minor. And, and the lords of Normandy went totally ham. They, they just started killing each other right and left. Uh, they went wild. He got older. He exiled a few he fought a few wars put down a few rebellions and eventually he got it all under his grip but some rulers didn't and then their their uh, counties or, or fiefdoms or whatever you'll call it descended into chaos so it was purely based on the ability of a ruler to hold his vassals to his will and as long as soon as he wasn't able to let's say you have uh, henry the third uh, or king john henry the third and the barons once you're not able to control them, once you lose authority over your barons, you're toast because 
now they 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 they're the whip hand so so yeah it's very very intensely personal and each feudal contract technically there was often a, 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 a what was supposed to be but that seldom translated into reality unless the lord had the ability to make it so yeah um i should probably head out pretty soon um i gotta check in on on the family but before i go is there anything else that you want to cover or or like maybe any major lesson of medieval history that the thing about it being the most personal part of history rings true to me it it feels almost like a sort of like there were not the same sorts of rigid institutions at all. And so there, there were only people really. But as, you know? as, as the medieval period progressed, though, its institutions grew and grew and bureaucracy grew. Yeah. I would leave off on, on a more sobering note, which is the way free peasants descended into serfdom during yeah. medieval times. Serfdom is fundamentally determined by a state of dependence where let's say you don't hold your land allodially, you don't you don't actually hold your land in freehold, it's subject to taxes. Now there were many different types of serfs. So you could have had you could have had a, a yeoman or a free peasant who held their land uh, in exchange for just a tax. If they didn't pay their property tax, so to speak, to the Lord, the Lord could take away their land, which is exactly the way any property ownership is here in the US. You don't pay your property taxes, they can come and take your house, and that's that. But more concerningly, the state of general dependence of the villains, the, the standard serfs, who lived on their lord's land and, and really had a rough life because they had to do a lot of work for their lord, they had to pay significant taxes. That was entirely based on the fact that there was a tremendous gap in the inequality in the uh, distribution of wealth. And the lords held all the power and the serfs held none. As soon as they held some bargaining power after the Black Death, the whole institution fell apart. But prior to that, when you don't have autonomy over what you're doing and other people have that, they can make more and more and more concerns over you. And many free peasants descended into serfdom because they had to borrow money and they had to borrow whatever it was. And in the end, their lands end up getting owned by the Lord. And now they have to perform all these feudal duties to stay on their land. And they're kept down. There's no more social mobility, very little social mobility. Even a lot of the thanes in Anglo-Saxon England descended into serfdom and obscurity after uh, William the Conqueror took over because they were displaced. And it's a pretty sad thing to think about because these guys were the big cheese and and they got dispossessed, and in a span of two generations, they were peasants. And in my opinion, um, and like I said in the very beginning, there are multiple vectors at play that, that means I can't predict what's going to happen. But this mechanic is playing out now, where people are losing independence, wealth, and, and, and um, access is being limited um, by a few modern day lords and i'm not saying we're for sure heading into a new feudalism but it's a very very distinct possibility to me 
Uh, so that that would be, I, I think, the final thought I'd go out on, um, because it's it's something I've actually been thinking about a lot lately. In just observing the mechanics now. Do you think now is much worse than other eras in history? I mean, like say the say like the the first or second industrial revolutions or say like during the enclosure acts, these are times when I'm thinking about economic forces really disrupting something that existed. People, before. people were starving to death then or, or being crushed by mountains or, or working at, at seven years old in the coal mines, breathing in suit till they died. Um, we're definitely not worse off than they were. What we are worse off in is spiritually, and I mean that in, in a broad sense, not necessarily in a religious sense, but what we need to be happy is a very high bar. And that bar is getting less and less possible to obtain. We're less happy with the simple stuff because we've gotten spoiled, especially in America where after World War II, we were literally the only power left in the world. Everyone else was bankrupt and or bombed to smithereens. And so there was this period of prosperity unparalleled in American history, almost unparalleled in world history, probably unparalleled in world history, in America. And that is all but melted away by now, and it's only going to get worse from here. And people haven't come to odds with that because living memory is only post-World War II. The people don't remember the Great Depression. You know, if you lived in the house that your great-great-grandparents lived in, um, you wouldn't be happy now. And that also has to do with a material thing where a peasant, they had a hard life in the Middle Ages. Um, were they all unhappy? I don't think so. I'm sure some were. And especially if you were a peasant or a serf in, in Russia or somewhere really bad like that. But not necessarily were you unhappy if you were poor. Um as long as you were able to stay on your land and you weren't a vagabond, you know, you were able to find contentment in religion and family and happiness and community. Happiness in all those three things has plunged. And people now, in my opinion, I think that's the reason why we're seeing so many more, such a rise in incidents of, of, mental health breakdowns, a general decrease in, in mental health, I would say has to do with because we've lost almost all the institutions that formerly kept people happy and grounded regardless of what else was going on in their life. So now things come and, and people have no place to fall back on and they fall into drugs, they, they fall into all kinds of other destructive behaviors. And yes, alcohol was a problem always, but I believe now, you know, people are much more prone to, to fall into these sorts of self-destructive behaviors uh, from adversity. And that's because all of our institutions are gutted. <laughs> well, that's uplifting. Yeah, I, I, we can leave on a happier note if you think it's you're asking me about if we're worse off. I'm going to tell you. How no, 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 no. It's fair. Um, man, do you think there's anything uplifting about the present day about the present day. Yeah. Like considering what you've, what you've taken away from history, 
Do you see anything that's happening today that like leaves you feeling optimistic? I'm genuinely curious about this. It, it almost feels like we over discuss problems that, you know, exist right now and under discuss anything that's good. Like to the point that people seem like they, they struggle to identify things. Well, obviously, the, the best thing about modern world is sanitation and medical advancements. There's, there's no arguing with either of those things. But what I would say more generally, uh, first of all, I'm a fairly pessimistic person. Um, I've almost totally withdrawn from politics or anything like that. I, I follow it, but I'm, I'm emotionally disengaged. I expect the worst. I just hope that I'd be left alone. That's really all I hope for. But do I think that's for sure going to happen? No. Am I optimistic about certain things? I'm cautiously optimistic that young people are starting to realize that that we've exchanged as a civilization, uh, we've exchanged our birthright for a bowl of porridge, so to speak, for lentil soup. Uh, And I think people are starting to realize that and there's a growing consensus among younger people that we don't want what happened to our parents and grandparents to happen to us. We want to build families. We want to build community. We want to live closer to nature. We want that's growing. And I hope that that continues to grow and it's not uh, disrupted by other forces because Naturally, I think over over a generation or two, we should see a major, major paradigm shift. Yeah, well, I think things, it doesn't seem like the way that society exists right now is sustainable or some kind of a stable point. So yeah, man, I don't know. I guess I'm certainly expecting something to be very different in 20 years. And that feels yeah. like a good scenario that you've laid out. Yeah, I'm just hoping to be to be left alone. And if homesteading grows, well, good. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, okay, cool. I should definitely go now. Um, okay. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Um, thank you. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to be on. Yeah. And so on Twitter, are you at History Courses? I'm at History Courses. My website is historycourses.com. Um, by the way, uh, just since I'm, I'm plugging my website now, there's also a giveaway uh, right now. I have giveaways, uh, quarterly giveaways. Right now, uh, any member gets into a raffle to win uh, Bernard Cornwell's whole uh, 13-volume The Last Kingdom series. Oh, wow. Uh, so drawing for that's on May 30th. So you have uh, 24 days uh, to join, 23 days to join. So, yeah, uh, that's, you know, the end. Thank you for having me. Oh yeah, no, absolutely been a pleasure. This, I mean, like we're well over two hours and it's, it's been riveting listening to you. Uh, I don't know your, your depth of knowledge about the things that you talk about is, is pretty remarkable. Thank you. It happens to be, we don't have time. I would have loved to talk about knowledge retention and, 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 and mental systems for that because it's something I worked on a lot uh, for history, but Maybe a different time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I I am completely open to repeat guests. So uh, okay, very good. All right, all right. Thank cool. you. Yeah. yeah, no, thank you.